Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Good afternoon to everyone. Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies in Brussels. My name is Vasilis Dusas. I'm the Senior International Relations Policy Advisor at FEPS and an Academy Associate at Chatham House. And I'm very happy to welcome to today's episode Adnan Tabatabai, a top expert on Iran and Iran-related affairs and a good friend. Adnan is the CEO of CARPO, the Center for Applied Research in partnership with the Orient based in Bonn and somebody who's directly involved in many projects, many dialogue streams that focus on Iran and the wider region. And of course, somebody who is regularly featured in international media for his analysis and commentary. And I should also add somebody who on Twitter is very active, and he is about 40 people away, 40 accounts away from the 10K mark. So make sure you follow. But Adnan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Vasilis, for having me, and it's great to be with you and your team. Now, of course, today's episode will focus on Iran, and there's a lot to unpack there, a lot to discuss, starting with the upcoming presidential elections, uh, the profound importance of this choice for the country, for the region, but also for the world. But we also have the vital issue of the still ongoing negotiations concerning Iran's nuclear program, uh, the future of the JCPOA. So this is a rich tapestry of topics of profound implications for peace, for stability, for security, for the Iranian society itself, but also for wider geopolitics. So let me quickly start with my first question. Now, we have the upcoming elections, as I said, but let's first take a small step back and focus on the legacy of the outgoing president, President Rouhani, who comes from the moderate uh, faction. And of course, so much has changed since his re-election. The last presidential election, we had anti-government protests. We had another parliamentary election, which led to a very different parliament. Uh, we had the U.S. departure from the JCPOA. We had the U.S. strategy of maximum pressure. We had the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian major general. And we had the severe economic crisis as a result of the U.S. sanctions. So almost a completely different, completely reshaped uh, political landscape. So what is the legacy of the outgoing president? And for that matter, uh, where does that leave Iran, the political establishment, and the Iranian society uh, some some days before the election. Thank you, Vasilis. I guess that the ultimate and final legacy of President Hassan Rouhani will very much depend on how his term that will officially end in early August will, in fact, end on the nuclear file. So, so to speak, if the nuclear agreement that was finalized in 2015 and implemented since 2016, if that deal, which was interrupted thanks to Donald Trump and the U.S. government, if that is restored, then a major important political accomplishment of Hassan Rouhani's government will somehow be restored and therefore his legacy be, be on the main theme of nuclear diplomacy. And here is actually the first important feature that I would like to highlight. And that is that similar to reform president Mohammad Khatami, who was president from 97 until 2005, what Hassan Rouhani did, and which I believe is a major mistake, is to link domestic and foreign affairs in a way that cannot be healthy. Usually in political science, you say foreign policy is a continuation of domestic policies, 
But with Hassan Rouhani and also earlier with the reform president Khatami, it was the other way around. The domestic policies being the continuation of foreign policy. That means he needed foreign policy successes to accomplish all the different reform programs on the economic front, on the socioeconomic and cultural front at home. And since that really didn't go through because of a uh, U.S. president that didn't like the, the nuclear agreement, many of the legacy Rouhani wanted to have on the domestic front didn't come into fruition. And I would say that the main focus had been on the economic domain, more transparency, more competition, more foreign investment, normalization of trade with Europe. He wanted that to be his legacy. Socioeconomic and political reforms were wishful thinking in terms of what Hassan Rouhani may bring about. But um, the economic recovery and reform should have been his legacy. And I guess it's difficult for him to accomplish that by the end of his two terms. Many thanks, Adnan, but perhaps playing devil's advocate here, given the tremendous importance attached to the JCPOA, how could he have avoided, you know, this link that you mentioned between foreign security policy? I guess what you're also trying to say is that he put all his eggs in one basket, the foreign policy one. But uh, I mean, if U.S. sanctions caused the, you know, the devaluation of the currency and the extreme economic crisis that they caused. How could he have avoided linking the two? That is an excellent question because it really helps me to highlight why I'm so critical of that approach. Because in foreign policy, you simply do not have everything in your hands. Iran wasn't well-prepared or couldn't be well-prepared once the JCPOA was finalized to really have interaction with the international finance sector because the Iranian financial sector simply was outdated and obsolete. It was not uh, up to international standards and it took a lot of effort for the banking sector of Iran and also for things like issues like transparency, knowing your customer, everything that matters in trade relations, in joint ventures, etc. Iran wasn't prepared enough. So homework-wise, Iran couldn't, it could have done a better job in making sure to immediately after finalizing the JCPOA and implementing it, sealing some something more than just MOUs, um, so that actual European and even American business interests would have entered the market uh, in Iran by mid-2016, so that it would have been a bit more difficult for Donald Trump to cut off everything that was supposed to be Iranian trade with uh, Europe, but also to some extent with the US. So um, homework wasn't done um, entirely. Hassan Rouhani wasn't able to win the hearts and minds of his opponents back home. Some of them never wanted to become Rouhani supporters, but his approach was also not such that he would make life easy for them to join the diplomatic success of the JCPOA. That would be another shortcoming of his presidency. Many thanks. I think that clarifies a lot um, in terms of your thinking around this issue and certainly provides sufficient uh, explanation as to why you think it's been a mixed bag and uneven performance uh, as president. But now we find ourselves in this moment uh, and let's hope his mandate ends on a high note with the successful completion of the nuclear talks. But for the time being, we have the upcoming presidential elections. So we can quickly turn our attention to that. We had a very peculiar campaign so far. Uh, We had the mass disqualification of moderate and reformist candidates. We're seeing in some of the polling, although it's slightly increasing, we're seeing mass apathy, at least uh, within large swaths of the the electorate. And of course, we see the hardliner judiciary chief, Ebrahim Raisi, 
as the uncontested front runner in this race. And we should say that he's somebody who lost to Rouhani in the previous uh, presidential election. So what's your take on this? Key contenders, the factions behind them, the dynamics, the interplay. We also uh, had two debates on this. Uh, but also, if you can quickly comment on the importance of this choice for the country, but not solely for the country. Look, I think let's start with the very ordinary, normal and boring things. And that is that even in the political context of Iran, you, you somehow have this kind of pendulum that swings back and forth between two grand political camps. And if the one is not able to implement th things successfully, then the pendulum swings back, swings back. So we had a reformist president 97 until 2005. It swung back heavily into the principalist hardline camp with Ahmadinejad's eight-year terms. And then it swung back again, not necessarily to the reformists, but at least to a more moderate faction that basically was even seen as a potential third force in Iran's political landscape. So now with the eight years of Hassan Rouhani's presidency, the, the economy in dire condition, many things didn't go through. It's quite natural to see the pendulum swinging back. But you alluded to it already. It's not just the overall climate, but also how the elections are set up. And we know that there is the Guardian Council in Iran, which vets every candidate for elections and their choice of approved candidate is extremely narrow this time so that people believe they don't really have not even the choice between bad and worse to go to the ballot box. And this is what drove people to the ballot box in the previous years because they knew there is at least a significant difference between two candidates and then they felt that they had a choice. This time around, the vast majority doesn't see that. Uh, which explains the voter apathy you have alluded to. We have 59 million eligible voters now, and uh, roughly 25 million of them will probably go and cast their ballot. What that means is that uh, with this voter apathy, the upcoming president uh, cannot claim to be the president of the majority of Iranians, and it will be very difficult and challenging um, to really be the representative of those not only that voted for an opponent, but also that, that didn't vote at all. And that will be a major challenge in the future for the Islamic Republic to make sure that the government manages to somehow represent at least a significant big part of the population. I see this as a moment of legitimacy crisis. I don't see this as an legitimacy crisis that necessarily has to prevail because we don't know. Maybe the future government will be able to improve the economic situation with the help of the JCPOA being restored, with the help of regional dialogues going on and easing tensions. Um, and then suddenly the people's livelihoods are improved. And that might, in fact, give some popular backing to the future government because the immediate livelihoods is what matters most in a country with a deep economic um, malaise. Let me very briefly say, in terms of foreign policy, I actually expect continuity because the grand strategies with regards to the West, with regards to regional dialogue, and even with Iran's shift to the East are, are things that have been developed in the so-called Supreme National Security Council and an entity which is which sees continuity even if a government changes. There are just a few positions that change. So that, that will rather be a domain, the foreign domain. I think we won't see too big of a difference, uh, even with a president like Ibrahim Raisi. Uh, just two quick words on this. If you can just paint for us a profile 
the front runner of Mr. Raisi. You you certainly talked about uh, his approach towards the JCPOA, or you alluded to that at least, where you expect more continuity than not. But we're also hearing rumors that he's being groomed to be the next supreme leader and so on and so forth. So just very quickly, how would you describe him? Ibrahim Raisi, for more than three decades, has been in the judicial apparatus of Iran in different positions. And he's also believed to be a key responsible figure for mass executions after the Iran-Iraq war in the end 80s, which is something that um, brings him obviously a high unpopularity in the vast majority of Iranians inside the country and abroad. But apart from that, I think one of his most important positions was that he was the head of the uh, Imam Riza shrine in Mashhad, which is not only for uh, religious circles, um, a very important um, institution as uh, as the host of Imam Reza, um, but it is also believed to be an institution that is working a lot in welfare work. Um, therefore, a lot of the people in need uh, relate to this to this entity as something benevolent. But there are also allegations that there are economic activities with with no real transparency and with some some embezzlement, etc. And during the Rouhani presidency, um, Ibrahim Rahisi, when he was the head of that institution, um, had to open the books and was trying to to recover from some some of these allegations. He then became judiciary chief after he, he lost the presidential race against Hassan Rouhani in 2017, and since then has tried to portray himself. And to some extent, even successfully, as a key figure fighting corruption. The anti-corruption campaigns in Iran, as is the case in many of the countries of its region, are usually quite selective. So only those who are not really in power are um, are attacked or those in the periphery of people who are believed to be very corrupt. But he has been quite explicit and quite active on that front. And, and even his supporters, many of his supporters say, it's actually a, a, a pity that he's leaving that position uh, before completing the five-year term that he was uh, appointed to, to become the next president. And yet he has a significant uh, following in the principalist camp. One personal characterization of him compared to other principalists that I believe holds true is that, in my view, Ibrahim Raisi is someone who wants to be popular. For him, being in the framework of ideology or of some religious belief or political conviction is not enough. I think he, in his political conduct, shows that he tries to be a popular person. Whether he's successful at all to do that is a different question. But I think this is a major difference between him and uh, Mohsen Rezaei, for example, or, or Saeed Jalili, who are also uh, in the election race currently. Nan, are you also saying that this makes him a bit less dogmatic than many profiles you see around some, in the internet? Yeah. I mean, some would, would view that as, a, as painting a rosy picture of him. But I have to say that I see that potential in him, that he, right. being willing to be popular, might also be a more pragmatic politician, because he actually, until now, is more of a cleric and a judiciary person than an actual politician. But I think him entering the political realm might make him a more pragmatic uh, figure. But again, this is something that, that we will have to see. Especially if his election is linked to what you said, you know, mass dissatisfaction uh, reflected in the election result and the vote to turnout. Okay, quick question on where that leaves the reformists, the moderate camp, you know, is there breathing space 
for the progressives, yeah. so-called progressives in the country? I mean, look, let's speak about the reformists first, because we really should differentiate between them and the moderate camp. And here I make an interesting reference that uh, your home institution will also like or dislike. And that is that I see Iran's reformists in the same kind of crisis than social democrats in Europe. Um, and I mean, I know most about social democrats in Germany who do not seem to be able for more than 10 years to come up with a reformulation of their political agenda that properly addresses social injustice, social grievances, hardship, etc. doesn't take seriously enough people's fears, even if those fears have the smell of being even like homophobic and xenophobic and all other negative attitudes that we all reject fully. But at least there is something in the societies that needs to be addressed properly. And Iran's reformists have also not been able to adjust their discourse to not be attractive to, to the middle class that has the luxury and time to think about the political participation press freedom, this, uh, cultural freedom, arts, etc. But to really also address those guys who have, who have to dive into waste bins to find some food for themselves or some paper that they can, some, some materials that they can then hand in somewhere and get some money for it to make a living of that. Um, so it's street vendors, all these uh, strata of society that have in numerical terms grown in Iran significantly, the reformists haven't been able to address this issue. And they stayed with their rather high-level, intellectual, very sophisticated um, way of discussing political culture, etc., and therefore weren't able to, to attract um, people. Then there are those who say they sold basically themselves out to the moderates. And when I say moderates, I mean more conservative elements of reformists joining forces with more progressive minds in the principalist or conservative camp. And this third political force used the mobilizing power of reformists during elections, but never invited them to actually have a share in the political or have actual political capital out of this. And this will sideline the reformists for some time, I believe. Uh, and I really hope that this time around, after this defeat, they will then be able to, to reformulate. There is a new political generation coming up, and maybe they will then develop a new reformist agenda that is uh, up to date and is not obsolete and has actually arrived in the 21st century. Thanks. Uh, that was comprehensive enough. And indeed, some similarities. So analogies are eerie when it comes to the uh, European landscape. Now, we've covered a lot. Certainly, we alluded to the nuclear talks. Let's focus on that now. We have this dance uh, that's going on. Uh, but perhaps I want you, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on uh, where we are with this dance after the U.S. departure from the JCPOA, the sanctions, the maximum pressure policy, the change in the U.S. administration, the Biden administration's efforts uh, and the president himself efforts to bring Iran back into the fold and to rejoin themselves the deal. But as this is a dance that both parties have to commit to, we've also seen the Iranian reaction in terms of rhetoric but also capability uh, development, which brings us to this moment where talks are resuming, or they are to resume, but the end agreement is still very much elusive. So what's your reading on this? I guess that ultimately they will come to an agreement. Um, and I would also be, I will also dare to 
predict that this agreement will come under President Rouhani's term. It may, it may not come before election date, but it may certainly come before the inauguration of a new president, which will be early August. In the first week of August, the new president will be inaugurated. And, and what I think is currently happening is to really do the nitty gritty, painful details of how many sanctions are going to be lifted that Trump posed and reimposed. Um, and the art that he and his administration con uh, adopted was to translate some JCPOA-related sanctions into uh, JCPOA-unrelated and more terrorism-linked sanctions, which are much more difficult for the Biden administration to, uh, to lift um, because of domestic uh, uh, rejection and domestic uh, opposition to that, um, domestic resistance, that is. And on the Iranian side, it's pretty much about um, some of the research and development work that Iran has been doing in the in the years after Iran also gradually withdrew from from some of its obligations. And there is this argument that some of this research and development work is not reversible as Iran claims it uh, it to be. And Iran then responds, "Well, but your." art of imposing sanctions on us has also increased uh, your knowledge on sanctions against our country, and that is also not reversible. So there is, uh, I think, a painful way, which is an ex a very painful path ahead about actual technical questions with regards to Iran's nuclear program, and very, very much legal issues that Iran would like to also be able to verify before going back to its technical obligations. And uh, But to me, it's beyond question that they will find a solution. We have seen so many um, things that could have uh, stop the talks, mainly Iranian-Israeli escalation uh, in in uh, in the sea, but also on Iranian territory, uh, cyber attacks, etc. But these have not derailed the talks. So, to me, the political will is there, and ultimately, they will come. They will come to a conclusion. Thank you also for sticking your neck out with a concrete prediction, uh, if you'd like, of uh, what it is that we should expect, but also when to expect it. And you certainly, you were right in, in talking about the parting gift, gift in quotation mark, of the Trump administration to the Biden administration. Let's see if uh, the future Iranian president, whoever that might be, sees a potential completion of the nuclear talks under President Rouhani as a good parting gift for his administration. Um, now, my last question to you uh, regarding the nuclear talks has to do with Europe. Um, I mean, we know that uh, the EU and the High Representative um, uh, played a hugely important role in co-shaping the previous negotiations and um, in a way accompanying them to completion, to maturity, to fruition. But right now, with a new Biden administration, a potential, well, a, a future new administration in Iran, where does that, uh, the, this set of dynamics, where does that leave Europe? the EU. With all that's at stake, what part can Europe play, if any? Right. I, I have to say that the only thing, but we should not underestimate its importance, but the only thing that the EU is, and I'm explicitly speaking about the EU, um, can play here is to keep on coordinating meetings with the Joint Commission, anything related to talks with regards to the nuclear agreement, um, to set the agenda for them, to really put the agenda in a, or set the agenda in a way that is conducive to producing results. But uh, there will be very little, if not nothing, that can be offered to Iran as 
incentives from the European side that are not in any shape or form already greenlighted by the US, which means that for Iran, the past uh, years between 2018, basically 2021, have shown that without a green light from DC, there is nothing big that can be expected from, from Europe. And when I say big, Actually, it's mainly in, in economic terms, because what Iran wants from Europe is basically economic relations and trade. And this is the only thing Europe will be able to offer to Iran. But uh, Iran has come to, the, to a realization that even that offer is only useful if the U.S. is behind Europe. So that means that, that talks and any future arrangements and also potential future talks about security-related affairs will have to be between Iran and the US. And um, I don't even see a mediating role there for the Europeans to play, um, but would rather see even countries of the region, like we're seeing currently in the Iran-Saudi talks held in Baghdad, that potentially a country like like, like Iraq uh, um, or, or Kuwait or other countries of the region could be the mediators between Iran and the US, but not no longer, I think, the, the Europeans, at least for the time being, because it was very clear that they are, so to speak, in an Iranian saying, in the basket of the US. And that doesn't uh, make them eligible as mediators. I've shared with friends the story of me being in a taxi in, uh, in Tehran, and the taxi driver understanding that I come from Europe asking me about Federica Mogherini. He knew former high representative's name full name, which I doubt was the case uh, if you were to ask a random taxi driver uh, in most uh, European member states. Um, but this is a sad reading, of course, of Europe's uh, influence, leverage uh, and impact. And uh, Let's hope that somehow these dynamics change going forward. Okay, we've covered a lot of ground regarding Iran, but I want to end on a higher note. And I want to ask you, you come from Iran, uh, you know, you have family there, if you could share with us a personal story, memory that you have of the country uh, over the last few years uh, where the country was experiencing extreme hardship, something that testifies to the, to the beauty, to the resilience, uh, to the um, vibrant nature of the Iranian society, the Iranian people, just as I said, so we can end our discussion on a higher note. Yeah, I think um, it might not be a sign of resilience to the broader global politics, but there is one scene that uh, I also described in one of the chapters of my 2016 book, it's a while back, um, and that is that I was uh, I was in the metro and a young female, I would say in her mid-20s, entered the, entered the metro and someone else left his seat and there was this young lady and, the cler and, a, and a cleric which eyed the seat and the cleric was telling the young lady to sit down. He was offering her to, to take the seat and not him. He was obviously much, much older than, than the female person, but she was insisting. And that went back and forth for, it felt like forever. It was probably 30 seconds. But what that scene showed us was there was a moment in which the culture of young people offering elderly a seat in the metro or in a bus is something that you would see. At the same time, you see the cleric 
who, and this is also something that you see in met in the metro, people protect protecting women in the mixed zone of a, a, a metro so that they don't have to stand and people may may come too close to them, etc. So they offer them to take a seat. But at the same time, a woman who does not want to be belittled in a way or not taken seriously or offered something which can be interpreted as positive discrimination, then had suddenly in the in the in the minds of many, but in mine at least, you had this 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 generational gap, this different interpretations of how you have to offer whom something because he's old, because she's female, because he's a cleric, because uh, she's more vulnerable, etc. And um, the whole dynamics of this scene showed me that that lo a lot of underlying themes that are not out there in the open because they are at times um, taboos show themselves in such a mundane situation. Um, it doesn't necessarily show the kind of resistance or the kind of attitude of Iranians going through crises, but it pretty much illustrated uh, the, the different themes that are um, somehow in the minds of many, but can't really burst out in the open to be clarified for good. And that's the one thing that comes to my mind now that you have um, asked me, and I hope it does justice to the expectation you may have had. Many thanks, Adnan. Might not be a sign of resilience, but I'm reading it as a sign of progress. Perhaps difficult to detect, but it's very much present. So indeed, um, this is a, a good uh, note to end on. So our time is up. Uh, I would like to thank you. I would like to thank Adnan Tabatabai for being with us. And I should say the book that you alluded to, I'm guessing it's Morgan in Iran. Um, <laughs> it is, yeah. It is for anyone interested, uh, can be found on his website. Adnan, many thanks indeed for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Vasilis. Thank you to FEPS. This was FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies in Brussels. You can find the series on all podcast platforms. And as always, please make sure you subscribe. Finally, as I always do, I will leave you with a quote. And this time it's not a quote, but it's more of a saying. I've been reliably told that in times of crisis, Iranians like to say, which means in English, this too shall pass. So with that hope, I want to thank you all for listening. Have an excellent afternoon. Many thanks. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.